0: You know, Quasimodo predicted all this. Who did what?
1: You're listening to Pada Bing Redux. Redux. A podcast where we're going to discuss a couple of three things about, well, a couple of three things. Sopranos and Sopranos adjacent. One of which will be the writing. What's happening script level. I'm Vic Singh. And in the time since the last episode of this pod... I've been doing a lot of writing myself, features, TV pilots. Some of it got some favorable attention, while other drafts, most drafts, were used to kindle fireplaces up in the mountains. How it goes. Even Clay Thompson goes one of 13 from the field on occasion. But
0: when you shoot 35% for the field, when you shoot 33% from three-point range,
1: there's gonna be some questions, bro. But some of the work turned out okay, placed high in some competitions, and even got representation how? I ask myself that all the time. And every time it comes back to one thing. This fucking show. Many times over the past year, year and a half, I found myself returning to episodes or moments in the show to enlighten me, get me out of a writing jam, or simply be an alternative to taking a walk or going for a jog. As much jogging that can be done on a ruptured Achilles glued together by creaky scar tissue anyway. Too much? If this isn't your first rodeo with Pada Bing, you get it. Watching the show makes us feel things, think things, sort through stuff. With or without an edible. It's that thing we harped on on the OG pod all the time. The show as old friend. And watching, listening, or reading about other stuff invariably makes me compare it to this show. Or hold the prism of the show up against it. This time around, I'm seeking answers to what about the show makes us so goddamn loyal to it. Because that's what you want if you create anything. Beyond merely existing, you hope that it sustains over time and grows an audience. Now, this isn't a do-over of the pot of bing that's out there. That was an exhausting and equal parts soul-enriching and soul-crushing voyage toward a mythical snow leopard I never quite managed to spot. Though, if you ask my wife or a couple few of my closest friends, They'd tell you otherwise, but I'll save myself doubt for therapy. Now, while I will watch every episode again, how can you not, and use that as an anchor to moor every installment of Redux, this time around I'm looking for and thinking about different things. Things I might not have looked at yet, or if I have, then incompletely. As always, I'm going to reflect and react and riff on things that come to mind spontaneously as I go through the episodes only this time with a different pair of pota-bing of glasses, that of writer. While I'll certainly touch on themes, moments, and situations that strike me now, today, as I watch it again for the hundredth time, the Redux edition will be more laser-focused, at times maybe even overly academic, on the writing. Things like structure, tone, and what makes it eminently producible. How the actions, dialogues, beats, slugs, and a certain glossary of other terms are affected and executed on screen. I'll be looking to answer things like, what strikes me now and why? What works in the episode? Why does it work? What specifically makes it work? What else out there compares or comes close that can be instructive or contextual? And if I'm doing it right, what can we learn from it? If you want that signature frame-by-frame detail and minutiae, go back and listen to Bing proper.
0: Get the fuck out of here.
1: It's all there. But if you want to nerd out with me on what's happening script-level, Redux is for you. Part lecture series for myself to get better at the thing I'm trying to do. Part masterclass for the firing lines of creativity. Part big-picture reflection on how the show and its characters hold up and stack up against the stuff that's out there today. I hope you'll come for The Sopranos, but stay for the deliberate meditations on everything that springs from it. So, let's Redux our way back into the pilot, shall we? How to start. A question that confronts anybody that's ever tried to do anything, as I'm sure it no doubt thwarted even David Chase. What makes him so different, though, is that where most people would quit before they ever even started, Chase starts, arguably in the most exacting and perfect of places. Right in between a woman's legs. And then, as if we weren't wrong-footed from the start enough, he uses early camera movements to control and contain us. A push-in on Tony, then on the statue. This early guiding, if you will, besides being visually interesting, creating spatial awareness, and directing our attention, is almost an invitation to look around, get close, orbit this guy. The hypnosis inducement begins on page one. And we're being told, follow me. I promise you, there's good reason. Now, it took me several hundred words to say all that. And that speaks blatantly to why Chase is Chase and the rest of us are whoever the fuck we are. As he managed to accomplish all of that with a statue and a close-up. A simple gold heart on a chain. You gotta fucking sell it, right? As Junior reminds us. Right off the bat, the objective has gotta be finding a way to get people to like this guy. Identify with this guy. Accept this guy. And go on this journey with him. And what better way to start than by showing him essentially worshipping at the altar of where most guys, well, worship. So, pro tip number one, when in doubt, start with inner thighs. The writing accomplishes so much by saying so little. Less is more, like we learned from Van der Rohe. That's always the key to everything. However pedantic it is at this point to say show, don't tell, That's at the heart of what it is. And it bears repeating, because if it was easy, everybody'd be doing it. In my own writing, I look at every page of text with the same scrutiny, the same judgment, holding it up against this show. Not to see if it's objectively on par or equivalent or whatever, because it never will be, but simply to see if it's working the way I expect it to, or in a way that's worthy of the way the show makes me feel when I watch it. I'm always looking to see if it checks off these self-invented, Boxes of potency, the same way this show does to propel the story. And whether or not it answers a question, something David Chase and Terry Winter have mentioned so many times is it entertaining? That is to say, is there amusement, enjoyment, diversion in the hearts and minds of readers and viewers alike? And just for a little global thinking aside, many shows since The Sopranos have started in either a waiting room or exam room where the character we're being asked to follow begins their journey with us amidst a health scare. Dave Bird in Dave, waiting to see the doc about his problematic privates. So my theory is, when they had to replace the hacked-off dick skin, they used my testicle skin to replace it, which would mean that my dick is made of balls. J.D. in Scrubs, waiting to get checked out on his first day interning at Sacred Heart. That 2011 film 50-50 with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. In many ways, there's no better place to capture the audience's sympathies. Now, the show at its best is about power dynamics. All the best ones are Thrones, House of Cards, The Wire, Mad Men, Succession, The Bear. Yeah, I just put the Bear in this company. Breaking Bad, The Crown. It's about those who have it versus those who don't. All of us find ourselves on one side of that spectrum or the other at various times in life. So it's something that always works. Here, before we even meet Melfi, we get a glimpse of the first power dynamic at play. The strategic placement of symbolism in the waiting room. Tony's an alpha. We haven't watched but a few seconds, but we know that going in. It's a story about a gangster, a boss, all that surface-level shit that gets everybody's antennas up. But she's a boss too, just a different kind. There's levels to this, right? Meek Mill? Now, we know all the imagery and symbols around Melfi's office is a setup. And as a matter of structure, Every setup has to have a payoff. And every payoff, in turn, has to have a setup. And one of the great payoffs of Melfi's mind-bending artifacts comes in the form of a great line later. The fucking painting.
0: I knew that was a fucking scam. I knew that painting was a fucking scam.
1: The statue serves as a kind of triage when you think about it. Under normal, low-risk circumstances, it should facilitate relaxation, mindfulness, introspection. But if it manages to escalate the patient, she'll certainly hear about it and start her inquiry there. When you get right down to it, Melfi's simply trying to be like Bonnie Raitt and give him something to talk about. It's not lost on her that most people who come through those doors are hesitant to talk. Inside her office exists the second power dynamic. We're in a room where people are supposed to talk. People in rooms talking. That's prestige TV, right? Only thing is here, no one's talking. She waits. Patience is power. And script wise, it's effective because the silence creates tension. Another keystone for this stuff, the interplay between tension and release. And this tension begets curiosity and intrigue. We're in from a what the fuck's gonna happen next point of view. And what's so workmanlike about this show is that it's a constant spool of tension, but it's let out with subtlety, sometimes just a gesture. In this case, Tony not knowing which chair to take. The cuts between him and Dr. Melfi, each one sizing up the situation, looking for the upper hand.
0: California, stay away from here. Stay away from here now. Don't, don't, don't come in here. Whatever you hear, stay away. John Doe has the upper hand. Mills! Here he comes.
1: Sure, the visuals and camera maneuvering lures us in too, but that's all born out of what's happening on the page. Okay. Now we have two people actually talking, and, script level, what immediately makes it work is that they're opposites. She says one thing, he refutes it. And opposites beget tension, or furtherance of it. In every scene, every character wants something. And, naturally, something's in the way. That's the dramatic conflict, be it internal, external, interpersonal. What Tony wants in this moment is not to be here, In this moment, relatability checkbox number one. What Melfi wants in this moment is a couple of three things to get him to want to be there, to apply her science, her profession, and to earn a buck. On an atomic level, there's always the matter of money and the here's that word again tension that it creates. When one person has to part with it, they want to be sure they like what they're buying. And in therapy, The money's gone whether you're happy with the services rendered or not. This ain't the men's warehouse. There's no money-back guarantee here. Now, as they talk, notice the camera choice to toggle between wide shots and close-ups. The close-ups aren't in script, but the context and the tone of the script manifest them. That's the execution side of it. What's it doing? What's the design happening here? It's aligning us with him. And if you want to be really fucking dark about it, aligning us to the point of no return. It's hypnosis. About the only thing missing from this moment is Catherine Keener stirring a cup of tea. Or a flaming lips needle drop. Again, in these early moments, all you're thinking about is getting people to like this character, identify with him, relate to him in any way possible so that, well, you forgive or overlook all the other things he does. Like Jerry Rafferty, right down the line. And the choice to go close on Tony makes him appear more vulnerable, exposed. Whereas when we're watching Melfi here, while she's a little tentative, she's in control. And that's something Tony very much doesn't like. Something most of us, myself included, very much don't like. And therein lies relatability check number two. So what has to happen now is we need to know shit. There needs to be some exposition so we know what the fuck's going on how we got here, why he's in this room, and where this is going. To achieve that, she gets him to tell a story. And script level, that's executed non-linearly. Melfi serves as an audience surrogate as Tony narrates a story about what brought him to this point, in a very memento or usual suspect sort of way, even though the former came out after this episode. Also, I use the word story intentionally, because, of course, most of what Tony tells her is complete bullshit. But an even more interesting thing is happening. In an instant, we go from outside his head to inside. And that, whether we realize it or not in the moment, is bringing us closer to him, allows us to experience the story from his perspective, gives us access to his thoughts, emotions, sensory experiences, as opposed to letting us merely be bystanders, peering in the window of a world we more or less don't belong to. It's an elegant way to get us to fully invest early in the character arc. He's being vulnerable with her, and by extension, us. And what does vulnerability often see when it looks itself in the mirror? Empathy and concern, looking back. Relatability checkbox number three. So many films and shows utilize this inside-outside mechanism, so it's not like The Sopranos invented it. Think about movies or shows like Fight Club. The voiceover twists and turns us through Ed Norton's psychological state, R. E. Tyler Durden. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. We're in Jim Carrey's head virtually the entire time. Peaky Blinders. I mean, how else are we gonna know what the fuck Tommy Shelby's talking about? Mr. Robot. The rock upon which the church of the show was built was Elliot Alderson's head. You can practically hear creator Sam Esmail riffing on Matthew 16:18. And I say unto thee, that thou art Rami Malik, and upon this rock I will build my show, and the gates of hell, or suits with authority to not re-up us, shall not prevail against it. And finally, Fleabag, which takes things to a whole new level by breaking the fourth wall. Though I'm convinced that mostly worked in part because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is just so irresistibly cute. Imagine Bobby breaking the fourth wall. What's the common denominator in all of them, including the Sopranos? We remember them. Still talk about them. Back to Melfi's office. Where's the first place Tony's head goes? Family. Worries about the future. The way of the world.
0: It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for
1: that. I know. And then Ducks. His happy place. The fixation on the Ducks is doing double duty. By him fixating on them, we stop fixating on what he is. For now, he's just like us. A sentient being trying to be one with nature, find purpose in it, or, most likely, just get out of his own fucking head. My therapist told me early on in my overpriced journey to find something that lets me engage all five senses, even if I'm just imagining it. For Tony, it's those ducks. But they're a placeholder for whatever we want to insert into our own train of thought. Like caramels or coffee for Will Hunting. Your ducks may be actual ducks. Or if you're Jamie Foxx in Collateral, postcard of a tropical beach. When was the last Spirit. time you took a break? I go on a vacation all the time.
0: How often?
1: A dozen times a day. My favorite spot.
0: Now these It's my own private getaway. Things get heavy for me. I take five minutes out and I just go there.
1: Moving us ever closer into the fold. Those of you who bake, folding properly is piecemeal, right? We get a glimpse of Tony's family, but we're parachuted in. There's no exposition. And one of my favorite things about the show is how scenes start late and end early. We'll get into that more later, but there's no fat on the edges. Carmela's hymn with those ducks tells us everything we need to know about their relationship in four fucking words. It's about him. Not her. Going back to what every character wants, we're being told she wants him. And to complete the circle of tension, he doesn't necessarily want her outside the bounds of contractual obligation, and certainly not in the same way. But what we're seeing, the setup, is that if our character can love something, we can love him. When Tony comes in from the pool, he shows us how much he's into his kids, that look he gives AJ. This just before the shades of gray begin to show. To me, the timing of that detail was critical. One last bit of character evidence, if you will, that this guy's unimpeachable right before, well, he's about to get impeached. Carmella asking if he's gonna be home later for AJ's party is the payoff for her look of disgust out the window. That what do they have that I don't have look.
0: You know what I don't understand, Tony? What does she have that I don't
1: have? And Tony's non-answer is the script's way of revealing the layers that are at play here. Like those ducks trying to fly away, so too maybe is Tony, even though we learn later that the ducks represent his family leaving him, could just as easily be the other way around, especially with a guy like him. And good, bad, or indifferent, it's relatable. Tense moments with a spouse or partner, or one speaks and the other doesn't. Him patting her on the butt but not answering her when spoken to suggests he views her as an object, property, chattel. It's one of the things I always find myself coming back to. So often the show dares us to turn on him. But it never works. Why? Because he's a composite of all of us. A composite of human behavior. Now, the tension about his many dealings outside of his marriage is suggested but not fleshed out yet for a beat we think differently about him but then poof we cut back to a close-up of him in the present being vulnerable nervous suspicious and we're right back to eating out of the palm of his hand okay so you may or may not be a serial philanderer but god damn it you love ducks and your son a lot more than most dads show affection for their sons There is no escape. Don't make me destroy you. From family, the script transitions us to his other family. He's being driven to work by Christopher. Now, script level, this is a new scene, right? You gotta set the table. Christopher wants something. To not be there. Tony wants something. To get somewhere. And his mood is short and irritable to start, but by the end, when they spot Mahaffey, it changes. Like Nikola Jokic when the defense switches and he gets a mismatch. Notice how we're immediately somehow against Christopher. Because here's a guy who doesn't do what he's told. And his entire introduction suggests a guy who's checked out before he's even checked in. From getting home late, to being nauseous, to getting permission from his ma about whether or not to go to work when he's in his mid-twenties. In many ways, their relationship in this first moment is their relationship throughout the whole show, especially when they're in the car together. Tony, of course, having to unfuck what Christopher invariably fucks up. Script level, we've got a sense of their relationship in about 20 seconds, less than a quarter of a page. Tony weaves in and out of the narration, which is a technically and clever way to introduce exposition, keep us close to the action, and most importantly, remind us that we're inside Tony's head. I'm inside your head, too. I'm you. So now that we're on the train, Chase brings us to a screeching halt. Now that we're, in effect, in, he gives us the rules of engagement.
0: I don't know where this story is going. But there are a few ethical ground rules we should quickly get out of the way. What you tell me here falls under doctor-patient confidentiality. Except if I was, uh, if I was to hear, let's say, a, a murder was to take place. Not that I'm saying it would, but if. If a patient comes to me and tells me a story where someone's going to get hurt, I'm supposed to go to the authorities. Technically.
1: She calls his BS. And all we need is the cut to his face up close to see how exposed he is. But then we get a glimpse of his ability to redirect.
0: We had coffee.
1: And then, as if to get the train rolling again, having made sure we're all buckled in, there's the matter of the action sequence. Commenced with actual coffee falling, or a match cut. What's especially clever about the sequence is the comedic tone that kicks it off. The music, the histrionics. It kind of blunts the vicious brutality that Tony drops on Mahaffey. Like, we're okay because this motherfucker fucked with Tony. And, well, we like Tony. Team Tony.
0: We ride together. We die together. Bad boys for life.
1: Now, that Christopher fucked up and couldn't handle Mahaffey himself further drives our wedge between the two of them. On the one hand, we've got a guy who can. And on the other, we've got a guy who can't. Opposites. And opposites, script level, are what it's all about. Anybody who's ever studied anything about screenplays will often quote Sorkin, who said, at the heart of everything is intention and obstacle. What I need before I can do anything uh, is an intention and obstacle, okay? Somebody wants something, something's standing in their way of getting it. They want the money, they want the girl, they want to get to Philadelphia, it, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, but they've they've got to really want it bad, and whatever is standing in their way has got to be formidable. Uh, I need those things, uh, and I need them to be really solid, or else I will slip into my old habit, back when I was 21 uh, with the electric typewriter, of just writing snappy dialogue that doesn't add up to anything. We we won't be moving forward. What Tony wants here is Mahaffey to make good on his debt. What's his obstacle? Here is always Christopher. Off-script for a sec, what makes this action sequence so impactful, almost as engrossing as one of the *Born* car sequences, is the mixture of camera angles. Low, high, close, POV. Along with the rapidity of the cuts. Rapidity is a word,
0: right? What'd you say? Are you being a fucking wise guy with me?
1: And then there's the matter of Tony's calmness. It's simple, but specific. He's a global thinker, a chess player, Steph Curry, in that he takes what the defense gives him before unleashing a flurry. Besides making for a very average NBA reference, the calmness does something else. It makes us calm around him. For those of us who aren't calm, or who lose their cool under pressure, we may even actually envy the guy. All this is to say the word opposites again.
0: How far you want to push this thing?
1: At the outset, Chase tells us this is a mobster, a killer, a womanizer. A criminal. But every step of the way shows us characteristics that are the exact opposite of that. Before we see any of that other stuff, we see ducks. And to a man or woman who's watched again and again, those ducks are what we default to. My favorite part about this action sequence is the critical plot point that Chase slips into the action subtly, certainly sneakily, but very brilliantly. Because how boring, how amateur, how run-of-the-mill is it to just hang your hat on plot, plot, plot? While beating the shit out of Mahaffey, Tony lets us know he's tired of being second fiddle to the old regime. We're already on the train, but now he's given us another axe to grind. And we want nothing more than to follow up on that. It's only made more special by the fact that the old regime, including his own mother, has an axe to grind with him. Two. From haphazard physical abuse to the calm, establishing shot of the pork store, contrast cut. This is one of the many things the Sopranos does best. Juxtapose scenes that are vastly different in tone or mood. It's that mixture of get your popcorn ready moments and go ahead, I'll wait while you unbuckle your belt and rewrap yourself in your blanky moments that make the tension throughout physically palpable. It makes tense action sequences feel even more intense, more exciting. Just think about how effective the baptism sequence in The Godfather now? is, with the intercuts of a peaceful baptism with bodies falling like dominoes. Another thing it does, one of my favorite things, is highlight the absurdity of most situations.
0: Our situation is absurd.
1: Uh, look, maybe hey, I should... shut up! Ralph, well, shut up! Another little detail about the cut that I only see now that I've done so many rewrites is that the cut on action is when Tony's door closes. One door closes, another opens.
0: Oh, you're going to get fucking cute
1: now. Tony's continuing his story of lies and metaphors. What he's saying is one thing, sterilized, legalized. But what he's doing underneath the voiceovers is something else entirely. Another stroke of genius that'll follow the show to its glorious end. He's full of shit, but we eat it up anyway. You know it can't possibly end well for this guy. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's gotta end badly. But the bargain we make is that we'd rather watch a guy live on his terms and have it end badly than, in many instances, be ourselves and have it just end. We want happy endings or bad endings. What we don't want is just endings pair of socks endings.
0: You know my feelings. Every day is a gift. It's just... doesn't have to be a pair of socks.
1: I love how we're parachuted into the scene. No setup for who these guys are. Pussy. Pauly. Let's just fucking go. Get on with it. In media's race, they call it. Sure, the audience has to do some work. But that's what we, by and large, want. And in exchange for that, we're immediately engaged. There's intrigue, immediacy, baked-in tension. We're forced to decipher the narrative. Love that word, decipher. Solid fucking word. We're active participants now, as opposed to passive doom-scrollers. Every pitch I've done or every note I've argued against has been in defense of parachuting into things. It's the one hill I'm always willing to die on. Drop the viewer into the moment and let them figure it the fuck out. There's no better antidote to overwriting than that. I mean, what do any of us know about the garbage business? Truly nothing, other than how to make the stuff they need to operate. But what we do know, or importantly, all we need to know to proceed, is that their business has competition and they want to mate sixth. So again, it's academic at this point, but... That's what I'm going for here on the Redux edition. We've got intention and obstacle. Tony wants resolution on his garbage roots, and the Kolar brothers are an obstacle to that resolution. What's the fix? Throwing another wrench or reversal into the Matrix? It's Christopher. Says he's got an idea. Visually here, he's on the outside and wants in. Guy wants a seat at the table like the rest of us. But we're already suspicious of his abilities, and it's a great fulcrum point if you're the writer to work from, he can be effective, might be effective, or he might not. Or, and here's where the beauty lies it could be a setup with a payoff to materialize down the road. Maybe in a later season. Maybe at Uncle Pat's farm.
0: Oh, shit. Just look at your canned peaches up there. I just had the car service. Watch what you say. I gotta move that shit. Again? The developer's going up there. Now, obviously, it would be good for you or our friend if somebody opened the canned fruit. So you and your cousin here, you're going to go up there and take care of
1: it. And then, of course, there's the matter of Big Pussy. Besides doling out all the exposition to give us the goods, he says something that at once tells us about the show and him personally. It's all changing. The world, their business, television at large. And importantly, Maybe even him. Again, a setup with a massive payoff when we learn that he's flipped. In terms of location, sense of place, the pork store reveals itself as a sort of hub. It's never said, of course, but it's through the actions. Barone going, Sill coming with information to move us out of this scene and onto another, bringing news that Artie Bucco's restaurant is a staging area for a murder sanctioned by Tony's uncle. Here and after known to us now as another obstacle for Tony. Again, the groundwork has been laid for us in the most efficient of ways. Tony wants to be the guy. It's the wanting, right? As we learned from Sal Moltisanti. And the person getting in the way of that is his Uncle Junior. And the suggestion that the hit happen at Artie's restaurant, operative language, Tony's friend, is what sets the stage for the next sequence. What's Tony going to do about the level of disrespect? And, perhaps more importantly, how far is Junior willing to go to impose his will?
0: Anthony is a cunt here away from owning all of Northern Jersey. And I am that cunt here.
1: Another contrast cut from immobility to mobility, Tony goes to Artie's, stakes out his uncle, and reveals their touch-and-go relationship. Of course, forever complicated by the fact that when Tony was little, Junior told everybody he never had the makings of a varsity athlete. Now, on a script level, we can see that a self-fulfilling prophecy has been put into play. And the payoff for us is the bottomless well of humor the show provides. Endless fodder for the subsequent universe of memers, Redditors, and fucking podcasters like me. Now, in true pilot fashion, we move right along to all the characters that need to be introduced, contextualized, and, if you're thinking about things on an episodic level, set up for future situations storylines. We already know he's in therapy. And if there's two things we know about therapy, whether you've had any yet or not, notice how I said the word yet, it's that we either go there initially because of our mothers, or if perchance we end up there under the auspices of another reason, we invariably end up talking about our mothers. He goes to talk about his mother. That's what he's doing. He
0: talks about me. He complains. She didn't do this. She did that. Yeah. Oh, I gave my
1: life to my children on a silver platter. And this is how he replaced me. Which brings us to Livia. Right back to intention and obstacle. He wants to please her. Seek her approval. And she, of course, provides a roadblock to that. So much so that she won't even acknowledge who he is at first. Now. This is a great scene, and we broke it all down on the podcast. But here and now, between all the cute, relatable back and forth, is a very specific thing. The scene doesn't just exist. It's Trojan-horsing the idea that Tony wants his mother to act as a go-between with Uncle Junior. It's putting on display Tony's natural delegating abilities, while also creating natural, obvious, and most importantly in these situations, entertaining scenarios of delegatees falling short. Fucking shit up even more. So around and around we go. The very person who Tony decides to delegate something to will end up being the same person essentially signing off on his demise.
0: Something may have to be done, Livia, about
1: Tony. Before we leave Livia for now, what does she want from this scene? Well, she wants a son that calls her, that takes care of her. What's especially interesting here is that she pits Tony as the obstacle to that. But it's so layered, right? Because she, in effect, is her own obstacle. You reap what you sow. From a quick refresh to the present, we go right back into Tony's mind at home, getting set for AJ's birthday party. Tony hates that the priest is always coming by the house, planting seeds, setting stuff up, systematic, intentional writing. A.J. brings news that Livia's not coming. And besides offering up one of the show's best lines... So what, no fucking ZD now? Hey! And by the way, every pilot has to have, at a minimum, a line like this for the ages. It portends a house on fire. And what better way to show that, of course, than with a flashback of fire from Tony's Grill. Not the cinematic flashback, but the other kind. The backdraft kind.
0: Fire originated in this room, took its time, hung out... Then the air ran out, so it couldn't breathe. It was snuffed, but it wasn't dead. It was still all that trapped heat lying low, waiting for some sucker to give it one big gulp of air. Another backdraft.
1: And that's exactly what it is. A house on fire. The ducks flying away signifies the end. It's just the beginning for us, but it signifies the end of something for Tony. And what's so relatable about the moment is that most of us feel the exact same way when things abruptly change. There's even a kid's book about it called The Lion and the Bird. Most of us don't go to the extreme that Tony does here, but how entertaining is it if he just splashes some cold water on his face and curls his toes like John McClane in Die Hard?
0: Fist with your toes. (laughs) I know, I know, it sounds crazy. Trust me, I've been doing it for nine years.
1: From Tony prostrate at home to prostrate in an exam room. Another match cut. Again, you'll have to pardon the academic nature of this. For me, Redux is homework. I appreciate the indulgence. The scene of Tony getting scanned is about one thing. Mortality.
0: How's your brother?
1: She's on her way out.
0: You all are. Act accordingly.
1: Good pilots give you a taste of all these things. Dysfunctional families. Bonus, we got two here. An extra helping. Explosions. Check. Health scares. Check. Dead bodies, wait for it. A cluster of characters with varying shades of gray. Put it all in a blender and you got yourself 46 long and longer. Tony gives his best attempt at making amends lest he have a brain tumor. Here he goes now with the nostalgia. Keeping Carmela square in the middle about whether he lives or dies is extremely effective because it pulls us in closer to her. She doesn't give as many tells as he does. And that mystery aspect of her is just enough to keep us coming back put us on a drip. She's usually a quiet wing on the perimeter, 3 and D. But on occasion, we get playoff Carmela, and she torches fools. It takes her just until right before he goes into the MRI machine to reveal her issues with his mistress. Scene level, there's two things going on here. Regrets? He's had a few, but he wants closure and affection and a pat on the back. And she wants to let him know that he, in effect, deserves everything that happens to him. And you can't help but laugh at Tony's comparison of his infidelity with her having a priest around all the time. That paradox is character development in a single line of dialogue. Tony uses false equivalencies to justify his actions all the time. I do this, but you do that. And they're essentially the same thing. And then he injects textbook gaslighting to make the person he's talking to believe they're actually the bigger problem. Script level and execution level He makes us believe it too. And no matter how much technological advancement displaces things going forward, AI and all that, this is one thing it can't displace. Human behavior. Born from being human. And living and interacting in a world with other imperfect, complicated, ridiculous humans. As Tony slides into the scanner, we watch Carmela immediately de-escalate. Almost regretting her aggressions. With just a look, we're told that she might want to give him a piece of her mind every opportunistic chance she can, but at the end of the day, she wants him around. She wants to fit neatly into the same relationship myth we all want with our significant others.
0: You think it'll always be like this? Yeah. I hope you... What? You never get tired of me. Oh, no. You ain't ever get rid of me.
1: Tony exits or slides stage left out of frame as we cut to a plane flying over the pork store, entering the frame from the left. Another match cut. I can't get enough of these details, as most of you know. And since I've written several projects and started moving them through the system of getting things made, they appear to me now almost Matrix-like in nature. But now I inherently see their value in tying everything together, making the script readable, especially early drafts. The payoff of Christopher's telling Tony he'll handle the garbage root problem is at hand. Lieutenants from both sides meet under the auspices of diplomacy to make a deal. As always, both want different things. Both have different obstacles. Chris wants email dead. The obstacle, of course? Morality. Letting yourself become a killer. There's no going back. And email wants to get high. The obstacle for him? Chris's small talk. I mean, how enticing is that visual of lines of coke on a cleaver blade? As impressive on the page as off. Got me thinking about moments that have that effect in other stuff I've seen and then gone back and read. There's the the what's-in-the-box moment in Seven. Or the final scene in Lost in Translation. Or the here's Johnny moment in The Shining. From pig heads hanging on hooks to Tony telling Melfi the doctors kept him hanging on the tests. We're back to the present. Just before, we're right back in Tony's head, recounting his tête-à-tête with Junior about conducting business at Artie's place. Tony wants Pussy Malonga whacked someplace else. Junior wants him whacked right where he feels the safest, and no place else. Both of them face the same obstacle. The others, stubbornness. And then, of course, there's the nice payoff of Tony telling Melfi his uncle never said he'd amount to much with respect to athletics.
0: How many fucking hours did I spend playing catch with you?
1: That long, lingering beat on Tony, beautifully informed by two simple dashes on the page. Melfi probes more into things back at home, and quite brilliantly, when I think about it now, as I'm looking at this from different angles, in Tony's head, things back home encapsulate his wife on the couch with a priest. But this scene is more about Carmela versus her daughter. And confronting her with a gun after mistaking her for an intruder is that signature dark humor we've come to know and love. The scene also serves to very neatly accomplish one thing. That Carmela sees Meadow as very much a chip off the old block. Only not her block but Tony's. You have become a master of lying and conniving. Part of that certainly might be a mother's truth. But another part of that, and thanks to the work the script has done thus far, is Carmela displacing her anger for Tony onto Meadow. I know. What am I, a psychologist now? Melfi's delicate dance is leading up to something. A word. Do you feel depressed? A word that has a way of stopping the train eliciting a deer-in-headlights look, kind of like Tony's. Takes him right out of his train of thought, no pun intended. Melfi's clever therapeutic intervention steers the conversation towards something that should lead to an insight. But here, the only thing it leads to is resistance. He wants to get out of this situation. She wants him in a kind of sunken place. The two wants meet on a map.
0: What part of the boot you from, hun?
1: When the power ping-pong reaches a fever pitch of sorts, when things are about to boil over, take us into our third act, it's a good time for a monologue, an essential but often overwrought part of any script. But not here. Let me tell you something.
0: Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally Jesse Raphael and talk about their problems. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type, That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this and dysfunction that and dysfunction my fucking
1: This monologue accomplishes many things. It creates immediately and forever quotable lines. It reveals something about Tony. He's not a talker. He's a doer. It's authentic. Who else but Tony? Could deliver that at that moment. It has emotional impact. It makes us feel something. It has subtext. While not explicitly stated, it's about things being the way they once were. It underpins the whole message to As It Was by Harry Styles. You can thank my kids for having that song top of mind right now. It has voice, it doesn't sound written, it sounds like it was improvised. It has conflict. Tony's grappling with the box he's in, Melfi's office, and what this all means. And finally, it has performance, rhythm, tone, intention. I could go on and on about Gandolfini's execution of it, but you know where to find all that. True professional that she is, Melfi takes the monologue blow by blow, but is more or less undaunted because she's armed with a one liner to rule them all Are you depressed? As evidenced, by putting her hands over her head as he blows out the door. Okay. From Melfi's exhale to grunts and pants, another match cut. The removal of email's body. Right next to, of all places, his family's bins. The point of this scene is to explain the white-collar part of their business: body disposal. It's dark, but pretty cut and dry, unexciting. What breathes life into it, ironically, is the cut to email's dead body keeling over, the comedy amidst the chaos. It goes from just a scene to an entertaining scene. But what makes this otherwise interstitial moment essential is the little thing Christopher says as they drag the body back to the car. You know,
0: T-collapsing at the birthday, what would you do? he was like disabled. Why would you even ask that?
1: That simple what if is a laser precise through line payoff to all the little setups so far about Christopher and his motivations. A combination of one foot out the door and fast tracking his route to the top. Now the Green Grove walkthrough is another payoff. Every setup has to have one. Livia mentioning the retirement home to now her touring it. But her despondence towards it is the real driver of the scene. Why it exists. Another panic attack that, of course, drives Tony right back to Melfi's office. In what I consider to be the precursor to the facepalm emoji. Tony's face in the palms of his hand in Melfi's chair. The script, in effect, telling us that her office is going to be a de facto rubber band for the show. or Maybe Magnet is the better choice. That there'll be a constant push and pull. And it will all either originate or end up there. And like we talked about earlier, we knew it was coming. Melfi got what she wanted. Time to feast in her mind. At least the look she gives us when she outright says it.
0: Stay with your mother.
1: All roads in therapy lead to the mother. And for good reason. Speaks to all kinds of things like attachment style, emotional regulation, and interpersonal relationships.
0: I'm in a relationship with all my bitches, yeah. I need to cut some of them off, I need help. I got some bad things
1: I to to The other part of this session has to do with Rico, and not the cousin, or Armand Sante, and Judge Dredd. What's interesting is that Tony decided he was done complaining about his mother and pivoted to more pressing matters.
0: See, things are trending downward.
1: What's so great about it is that Little does he know that she's about to become the biggest pressing matter of all. But what's a good screenplay without reversals on top of reversals? The government cracking down on Tony's business. But this is all just surface-level stuff. Fodder for casuals. What's really happening here is a setup. Chase is telling us that the business has changed. Guys aren't the same as they once were. There's no tolerance for the penal experience. The big payoff, later of course, where all of this comes to a head is big pussy. Big
0: push. Do you even really
1: exist? But what's established here, by putting it here now, you're creating intrigue for what's to come. You're telling the reader, and then later the audience, there's levels to this. With very little in the way of exposition, we are on notice that people in his own family pose problems, people in his other family pose problems, an alphabet soup of agencies pose problems, but all pale in comparison to what his mother's up to. So, from the specter of a Prozac prescription to the bouncing bodies of topless dancers, we're introduced to another location tether, the bing. This scene, of course, exists to revisit the Mahaffey situation. Guy doesn't have the money, says Hesh. Again, no introduction. Chase is just parachuting motherfuckers right in and keeping our heads on a swivel. But again, this isn't just about a guy you can't pay. The scene is doing work, telling us also that Uncle Junior's got beef. And whacking little pussy on Tony's ostensible turf sends a message. Why trash your own place when you can trash someone else's? Or perhaps more apropos, don't shit where you eat. And, as Tony reminds us in Luxury Lounge, you really don't shit where he eats. Despite no formal introductions, we can immediately deduce a couple or three things. Hash is a sort of all-knowing, soothsaying type. Offering solutions to Tony's problems, whether Tony employs them or not, is a different matter for another day. He's the perfect character to close gaps, offer context, expand the world. He's the adult in the room, and we know he's a guy who doesn't pay tabs, especially when he's owed. That visual alone of him handing the bill back to the waitress says in one gesture so much more than a hundred words could. Gets us wondering. Gets us maybe even judging him a little. All these groundswells of emotion are what power us through the journey. We're meant to like him right off the bat, and we do. Tony Soprano, of all people, is in his debt.
0: So what about this fucking Jews 250 on Mahaffey's 100s?
1: For what it's worth, you gotta respect the guy who always finds himself on the owed side of the ledger. And this setup, as we know, pays fat dividends later in the final season in chasing it.
0: The rig, three grand. Should put us up to date. Listen, I can't take this. Give it all to me whenever you can. You are gonna do this every time?
1: But where this scene really shines is how it reveals Tony's problem-solving skills. We learn he's on the hook to Hesh for 250, right? How? Hesh loaned Mahaffey money that was gambled away. Just like he'll loan Tony money, who will, in turn, gamble it away. Scenarios you can come back to, gifts that keep on giving. So what does he do? He steps back, surveys the landscape, like Dame or Steph or Trey Young before jacking a three. And then effectively makes Hesh an offer he can't refuse.
0: These HMOs, they pay out millions of dollars every day to doctors, hospitals, whatever the fuck. That MRI had $2,000 a pop. And we give this Mahapi a choice. He has his company start paying out phony claims to fake clinics we set up, or he pays Hesh the 250 grandiosum, which we know he cannot do. Or it's a rainy night in Linhurst.
1: Not sure why exactly, but I really enjoyed that expression. So much that I overquote and misquote it. Something about it screams great title, too. Now, Carmella pulling cash out of soup cans, I see that as a nice break in the action to show the reader and viewer alike what a day in the life is for these guys. They're not like you and me. And this is but one example of that. And showing, as we know, is so much better than telling. Also, I really like to think it was, at least in part, an inspiration for Chris Storer and his choice to put cash in cans in one of my favorite shows in recent years, The Bear. Sid, quit fucking around. Grab a can opener.
0: Family style? Two tops, boots? Danish design. Tasting menu at the bar. Window on the side. For sandwiches? Yeah. Hear me. Okay. Show you what the sandwich What do you call it?
1: Carmella, of course, is using that wad of cash to lure Meadow to a day in the town. A peace offering after pointing an assault rifle at her. Not that that's what Meadow was bothered by. That was, of course, the chance to see Skeet Ulrich at arm's length. But as with virtually every scene, the subtext. What this moment between them is all about is Meadow wanting to call out her mother's hypocrisy. And she almost does, but not yet. Why give it all away on the pilot? Let that shit brew. Set it up, but let it brew. And make the payoff worth it. Earned. Next, Tony goes to see Artie. Problems, problem solving. That's the show. Tony's solve for Pussy Malanga is sending Artie away on a cruise. Like that Interpol song. Wait, that's Take You on a Cruise. Naturally, Tony's offer is predicated on lies. Shut down the restaurant, Junior's gotta go someplace else. Too easy, right? Of course. But that just means it's a great opportunity to insert a classic foil. In this case, Charmaine, who makes Artie give him back.
0: Come on, Arthur. Somebody donated their kneecaps for those tickets.
1: Quick note. On that little scene where Melfi goes out to receive Tony but he's not there, nice little framework for a series of encounters showcasing the unique nature of their relationship. It fits to the extent that everything in the show fits. Why we study it so much. But I do wonder if that was an insertion that came later on, in a later draft, to tie things up even tighter. The cut on Charmaine's suggestion that someone gave up their kneecaps for the cruise tickets is not so subtly followed up by Mahaffey on crutches. But I love it all the same. Shows the attention paid, the joy that comes from someone who's self aware enough to realize their own level of craftsmanship. I heard Elon recently on Bill Maher talking about how he tries to be funny, and that he wasn't concerned with whether others laugh. It was enough that he cracked himself up. Very similar to something I read about Chase once, where he was given a note about something in the script, and it went something like, you can't put that in. Only three people are going to get it. And he was like, good. Then that's who I wrote it for. Those three people. But I digress. Mahaffey, hashing things out with Hesh. See what I did there? Now, This scene is all about subtext. We know what the fuck Hesh wants and all that. He's basically selling Mahaffey on Tony's MRI scam idea. But what's really going on here is more diabolical. It all takes place on a bridge. Are they going to toss him over? Is literally all we're thinking. Mouths are moving, but we're not hearing any of it. To me, that's even more impactful writing. Akin to hypnosis. We're all Janet Jackson in this moment. Moths to a flame. flame. One of the sticky notes on the wall in my office bears out this very idea of a moth moth to a flame moment. Still trying to stick the landing on some of them, but I'm acutely aware of their importance. Structurally, we need the payoff scene of Tony beginning his journey with Prozac. He pops a dose on an isolated golf course. More subtext. He doesn't want anyone to know. His paranoia rears its head, which is now an invitation for a series-long experience. Now, he could have done it in his car by himself, but Pilot Shine, as I think of it, why not have him on a golf course? Golf courses check boxes, and we can come back to it later in future episodes. Now, perhaps as a tell for future scenarios, Polly is inserted somewhat awkwardly to break Tony's moment, train of thought, what have you. And that awkwardness is intentional. Because what is Polly if not awkward, especially in many of his encounters with Tony? The matter of the Kolar brothers is swept away about as quickly as Dick Barone drives his bends in and out of the scene. It feels banal on its face. But I think it's actually a masterstroke in terms of early world building. Tony's a guy that puts wheels in motion, pun intended, this time. A slight nudge here or body tipping over there is all it takes. The underlying issue that necessitated the wheels-in-motion strategy tends to work itself out without further action. This is what that is. It's very much like this whole fuck-around-find-out phenomenon. The Kolarz, like most people in a similar situation, simply didn't want to fuck around long enough to find out. Next item on the pilot checklist, New York City, the establishing shot, the introduction of its power and promise, how everything around it, all the boroughs and New Jersey, want out of whatever they're in and to be in whatever's going on there. Moneyed class out to dinner at an in-demand spot. Again, it's a scene of opposites, the haves and the have-nots, only it's turned on its ear because a guy who should be able to get a table can't, and a guy who shouldn't be able to get a table can. Besides being reminiscent of Henry Hill walking into the Copacabana, the scene accomplishes something special in that it puts Tony and Melfi in an environment that's not her office. The contrast of that, and the potential for it to keep happening, is a platform for lots of material. Again, there's levels to this. We are constantly reminded of that. And the level here, Tony bumping Melfi to the front of the line, is a setup for what comes later in Employee of the Month. Namely, what Tony can do for her if she wants to push that button, light up that bat signal, or the beam. for anyone listening from Sacktown. Tony's infidelity on display on the Stugats is smartly inserted in between Tony's trip back to the same restaurant, only this time with Carmela. We're getting a glimpse of a day in the life of this guy. The one day on one-day-off nature of it. We've all got our social calendars. Some of them just might not be shared with the whole family kind of thing. He's no different. Then there's the matter of the waiter perpetuating the lie effortlessly. On the till. Making us imagine or wonder how many others might be on the payroll too is a subtle bit of beauty. Carmela thinking his confession is about one thing, infidelity, whereas him thinking he's doing good by coming clean to her about the Prozac. Pushing up against these different spectrums of human behavior is exactly where you want to be. Keeping characters guessing keeps audiences guessing. The scene also illustrates the importance of having a character start somewhere in the beginning of the scene and end up someplace else by the end. In this case, Carmela shifts from suspicion to elation. Tony shifts from cool and calm to defensive. If you really go back and look at every scene, especially ones that resonate, you'll find that there's always a shift, however subtle. Another thing that keeps me coming back like a yo-yo is that whatever truth-telling there happens to be, it's always surrounded by lies, or followed up with one. In this case, Tony letting Carmella believe Melfi was a guy. It's the kind of fluency in language, and I'm not talking about duolingo fluency, I'm talking about the kind where Someone speaking, say, English and Spanish, can seamlessly weave in and out of either with perfect flow, give you rap bars like Hove, walking from his bathroom to the kitchen, spitting into an iPhone, boom, punch your tickets to the Grammys kind of flow. God did, Hove did, Tone did. The pussy-malanga problem is handled against the window dressing of regular life, as are most things in the show. Phone call to the house, kid's answer, a setup for down the line, however small or premeditated, even if you didn't think of it right in that moment. Looking back on the corpus of material, it's there when you're breaking stories down the line and want to create a tapestry of continuity, coalescence. Tony dispensing instructions and code from the bleachers at Meadows Game. I've been to enough youth sports games to have heard any and all manner of conversation, but I've never once heard code speak for arson or murder. But these everyday, mundane settings do a lot of heavy lifting. Verisimilitude, obviously, but discussing grisly details of things to come, like Jesse and Walter White figuring out how to dispose of a dead body, quite frankly, just makes you sit in awe that moments like these can and are happening in places all over this rock. I'm in awe of you. The father-daughter moment, the church, the wisdom doling, the little things.
0: Someday soon, you're going to have families of your own. And if you're lucky, you remember the little moments like this that were good.
1: We get a taste of that here, and the perpetual state of wants. Meadow wants Tony to undo what Carmela did and let her go to Aspen. Tony wants Meadow to abide by her mother's mandates, expectations. He wants things to be as they should, as they were.
0: Go out now and find me two guys that can put decent gratter on your bathtub.
1: That last part hits different now. General contractors in a post-COVID world. Out of all
0: men that beg for a chance to drill your lots, maybe one in 20 will be oil men. The rest will be speculators. That's men trying to get between you and the oil men to get some of the money that ought by rights come to you. Even if you find one that has money and means to drill, he'll maybe know nothing about drilling. He'll have to hire the job out on contract, and then you're depending on a contractor. who will rush the job through so he can get another contract just as quick as he can. This is the way that this works.
1: Okay. Sill blows up Vesuvio. Note. We never knew the plan. We just see the plan. Executed. Show, don't tell. And the confidence of it is something you can't teach. Or even code, if we're talking about AI. You always hear about people talking about getting into scenes later and getting out of scenes earlier. This, to me, is the embodiment of that. All Sill is doing is walking down the street. Post-factum. I mean, you don't even see him walking out of the restaurant. Turn a corner. Nothing. Then, from an explosion to Tony in Melfi's office, claiming he's cured. A nice contrast cut to land this plane and get this motherfucker re-upped. Tony wants out of therapy, as always. Thinks he found his silver bullet, Prozac. But also that he's avoided one. The specter of getting clipped after being exposed for talking to a therapist. Melfi wants, well, a patient. She's running a business, too. And the best kind of customers for her kind of business are the kind that pay out of pocket, those who are unencumbered by the stranglehold of health insurance. She wins, for now, gets him to keep talking. Hey, the hour's his at this point, so why not? And what he tells her about is another setup that will pay dividends for the whole series. Dreams. This show, on a fundamental level, is a toggle between what's real and what isn't. And what better way to explore that than through the prism of dreams and dream analysis. A dream within a dream. Brilliantly, what it does, even if we don't see it yet, is open the possibility to blurred lines. And that's not just a Robin Thicke reference. By Tony going there in the pilot, a Stargate portal door of sorts has been opened. And it suggests that we will travel with him on this journey, both alongside him, outside of his head, and inside his head, wherever that may take us the word suggests is operative because that's what you want, script level. Little suggestions that can end up into flowery garden corners or brick walls where birds swoop in and fly off with your recently detached genitalia. I had a
0: dream last night.
1: The big thing in the scene, though, is seeing Tony cry, saying the word sad, admitting he's afraid, even though he isn't sure about what. So it's safe to say at this point, we do. And it's death, getting clipped, all for what? It's not said yet, but it's felt, this recurring idea of, for what? And to answer that question, we've checked enough boxes to stick around and find out. What kind of mob boss does that, get emotional? Well, this one. And that's precisely why we watch. We've been presented with a character who can do all the things we could never do, but experiences the same ebbs and flows of emotion, all within the same loose framework we all exist in. Family, friends, work. Ending on a grill bursting in flames as already laments the loss of his restaurant to a fire is elegant if not overly ironic. The scene achieves a lot by doing very little. We set the stage for Tony to quote, and often misquote, Melfi. We also set the stage for a revolving door of yes-men to walk in and out of his life. But it's kind of a lull of a way to go out. There needs to be one more punch in the mouth. A mini-monologue. A twist, as much as I hate to use that word. And you gotta love the choice to go back to the beginning, to further explore the dichotomy between Tony's generation and Christopher's. Guys wanting pats on the back. And Tony not being the kind of guy that wants to give them. Especially to guys who have no idea what it's like to be number one. And having him dispense things we already know to people who don't yet know it, that bit of dramatic irony, is a very nice way to demonstrate how the script creates a sort of web that envelops you. Almost makes you part of the story. Telling Christopher that he blames his inability to heap praise on underlings as a byproduct of his upbringing, his own parents, also might give pause to make Christopher think about how close to the bone that actually is for him, too. This dramatic irony isn't on the level of a Romeo and Juliet where we know she's just sleeping but Romeo believes she's dead. But I hope the point makes sense. Giving us an inside track this early in the show whereby we know things other characters don't ingratiates us into the story. Almost baits us to not keep watching. A lot of shows do this with reckless abandon. The key here is how subtle and understated everything is. My God, so much so that it got me out here doing two fucking podcasts about it. Dick, 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 dick,
0: dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot.
1: The setup for Chris since we met him is that he wanted out or was only partially in, because, well, as Chris Rock once said, a man's only as good as his options. The payoff for all of that is the revelation that he fashions himself as a storyteller, a regular Tennessee Moltisanti, and that there's actual demand for the kinds of stories he's got to tell. And balls on this guy. He gives Tony a sort of false reassurance that he's opted to stick it out with him instead, despite having other options. Now that everything's going to be all right from here on in. Line is a cautionary flag in the sand. (laughs) Nothing's going to be all right. But saying it is a sort of verbal version of drying concrete without the caution tape or cones. If we step into it, within a beat, our feet are encased and we're locked in for what comes next. Off the line, what could be bad? We cut to Livia, en route to the party with Junior. A coup de grace scene that really tells you what this entire show is about a mother who wants her own son dead in the most diabolical of ways. Silence as a scent.
0: Mr. Swearingen, I will take your silence for a scent.
1: And it didn't need to happen until the very final moment. That's the chef's kiss part about it. You never see it fucking coming. Sound familiar?
0: You probably don't even hear it when it happens, right?
1: Finally, could there be a more layered and confident way to end than by panning to a still of the pool? Chase is telling us two things here, because duality is a bedrock of this series. A, after what you saw, you need a cleansing of sorts. And two, see what I did there? Come on in. The water's fine. To quote Biggie Smalls, I got a story to tell. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I got a story
0: to tell. Oh, man. Y'all niggas ain't gonna believe what the fuck happened to me. Remember that bitch I left the club with, man? Yeah. Yo, stinking, yo. I'm up in this bitch, clear this bitch, fuck with my.